There are active chapters in about a dozen U.S. cities, as well as two chapters in Mexico, one in Mexico City and another in Morelia. The magazine published a special collection of critical essays on geoengineering last summer and expects to publish the first full issue in 30 years early this summer. Recently, we raised over $20,000 in a Kickstarter campaign, which will help us to pay authors and print the first issue. The campaign is still uh, going on for a few more days, um, welcoming donations if anyone would like to chip in. Um, so that's basically some background science with people. I'm now just going to go through some remarks and thoughts I'll share with you um, to kind of frame the discussion, and then we'll, then we'll start talking. Okay, so I wanted to uh, start with a, with a kind of a brief anecdote. So in 1922, Bolshevik and early Marxist feminist Alexandra Kollontai published a remarkable document entitled Soon in 48 Years' Time, in parentheses in which she sets a, sets a future scene. It's January 1970, and there is a lively and festive atmosphere in the House of Rest, where the veterans of the great years of the World Revolution spend their days. The story Kollontai tells is of a Christmas celebration where a group of youngsters celebrate with veterans of the now long-past revolution by resuscitating an old tradition, decorating a fir tree. The youth are bright, laughing, healthy, and happy, People work two hours a day keeping the community running and spend the rest of their time on whatever pursuits they most enjoy, including, quote, science, technology, art, agriculture, or teaching. The younger generation do not romanticize the struggles their elders went through. They deem that the struggle against the social problems of the past to have been noble and necessary, but they also consider their current endeavors to be of actually far greater significance and scope. Their task is to understand, explore, create, and enjoy themselves and their world. They turn their, quote, eyes to the stars and the dark black cloth of the sky, visible through the wide windows of the festival hall. Speaking to their grandmother, the children have the last word in the story and conclude, our festival is in front of us. Our festival is a life of endeavor and discovery. So when I came across this story, I found it really remarkable for its vivid portrayal of a mostly lost radical left who could look to the achievements of science with wonder and expect that the science of a communist future would vastly outstrip that of the brutal world in which they found themselves. Today, the radical left seems largely pessimistic when it comes to science, or indifferent. In a world where the brutish, profit-driven masculinity of Silicon Valley has a cultural monopoly on visions of the future, that left is disenchanted. Technology is their domain. Our transformations will be social. Science is the stuff of technopolitics, the tools of discipline and a fully automated interpolation shaping us into consuming but subordinate subjects. The psychic trajectory of an average PhD student follows a predictable course. Mm -hmm. An eager and wide-eyed youthful engagement with the popular science pumped out so voluminously, passing each exam and entering graduate school with the required assertion of one's dedication to the pursuit of knowledge and truth, followed by the smack in the face of the brute reality and this is, a, this is kind of a best-case scenario. <laughs> um, followed by the smack in the face of a brute reality of a neoliberal academic structure pitting scientists sharply against one another, but all under the mask of ethical expectations of collaboration, the abstract forces of a publishing, grant, and career structure that force endless and often fruitless horizontal differentiation of one's work from that of others, the direct dominance, especially for people of color and women, of a wildly hierarchical organizational structure spun in a dizzying admixture into an ideological web of meritocracy, chummy, straight-talking scientific honesty, and the claimed existence of a scientific community that would have a lowly graduate student with no security convince herself 
of her equality with the millionaire, this is a true story, millionaire gene patenting professor from whom she will hopefully in some years time receive a good recommendation letter, but who patronizingly insists that a union for herself and her peers would be laughable, an absurdity completely at odds with the free and independent intellectual space that is science. Hmm? And that's just to take the experience of an average grad student at top university, those who in some sense have made it. It is not to speak of the fact that most of the dollars spent on research are spent through the military. That, that is a fact, right? Nor of the fact that a large chunk of federal funding is spent directly by large corporations through grant structures that the, that the government funds, but that actually where the, where the money is actually used to perform research inside the research labs of corporations. Nor of the fact that it has always been the case that more than half of all research and development has been carried out inside private research labs at large companies, nor of the fact that entire fields can be reshaped in a matter of years according to the interests of, say, a Google, which is the case with my field of theoretical neuroscience, which has been entirely reshaped by the interest of Google and others in AI, not just in a top-down conscious fashion, although there is that, but also through the straightforward feedback effects of uh, job-seeking in the absence of any academic career prospect. It is not to speak of of course, the long history of the scientific justification of the most brutal forms of genocidal violence, slavery, oppression, exploitation, nor the greasing of the wheels of exploitation through the development of technology and machineries which discipline workers and turn them into mere you know, button pushers with no power, um, nor of the literal experimentation on human beings that science has so often engaged in. Recently, some on the left have been pushing actively against this pessimism and asserting a different approach, but often it turns into a kind of techno-optimism that would have the left embrace technology and progress wholesale, or if not wholesale, in what I would consider a pretty uncritical manner. In my opinion, the science of the people tradition offers, along with other radical science traditions, there have been many of these all over the world, there are similar things happening that I know of, at least in India, the UK, Philippines, um, and I'm sure many other places. Um, and that tradition, the radical science tradition, I think offers a more appealing alternative. Richard Levins, a uh, bi um, deceased biologist, longtime Science for People member, said that contemporary thought seems always to struggle to grasp the dual nature of science. The fact that science as a mode of organizing the development of new knowledge is inextricably bound up with a history of brutality and exploitation, and at the same time does really produce new and useful knowledge. The task, as far as he was concerned, was to constitute, perhaps in a sense he sought to do to science what Poulansas did to the state, science as a field of contestation, which could be transformed by the left along with a broader transformation of society. So not merely utilized, not merely denounced, but fought not just over, but within. Right? Um, in the pages of Science for the People magazine, many activists developed a similar strategy. They analyzed science, its norms, methods, philosophy, and critiqued it imminently. That is, they would often show how science was a failure on its own terms. For example, science could never be objective with respect to women when it was done by men in a patriarchal society. Therefore, in order to produce better knowledge on science's own terms, professed terms, not practice terms, society would need to be transformed to get rid of the patriarchy, right? If you want to have, if you want to study women, if you want to study sex, whatever, you know, if these, these things to be studied, in an objective fashion, you, have, you can't live in a sexist society. It's not possible. Or, to take another example, when science was structurally under the, under the direction of a profit motive, of the abstract subject, capital, and its human personification, capitalists, how can it be said to be objective? Members of science for the people were able to use this imminent critique to do something remarkable but easy to miss. 
They were able to look directly in the eye of the consistent use of knowledge for selective and often violent ends, while still seeing in its mal-realized ideals a number of things worth fighting for. But crucially, they understood that this fight would need to exist not only at the level of use or application, as I said, but within the very institutions of science itself, and over the very de definition of science, the very cultural images of science that exist, the way it shapes, the image of science, the way that image shapes our very conception of knowledge and our conception of other forms of knowledge and where knowledge comes from and what it is and what it can be used for. The left and humanity more broadly is at a crucial conjuncture in my opinion. In the best case scenario, there's a possibility of a left breakthrough that will continue to create a best case scenario that will continue to create electoral victories which might feed back and activate further rounds of grassroots struggle or working class struggle anti-racist struggle. However, we really have very little time to undertake it, the transformation necessitated now, not only by the ideals of emancipation, but by the very prospect of survival. The ideas that are solidified into, um, into some class of program in the coming years may be the core elements of a new set of hegemonic ideas on the left, best case scenario. Okay? It will be within the discursive context shape by those ideas, the ones that we are currently producing, that the crucial political battles of the coming decades may be fought out. That's my kind of hypothesis. For that reason, the work we do right now in elaborating and giving content to programs like the Green New Deal could have effects of a truly enormous scale. For this reason, I think that a vigorous discussion of the role and use of science and technology in the left's programs in the near future is crucial because science and technology does have a kind of a monopoly, cultural monopoly over the imagining of the future, right? And it's necessary to engage in that terrain to dislodge the idea that the future is merely brought about by technology, but also to kind of contest what technology means. And to, you know. um, so the purpose of the panel is to discuss in an open way the possibilities for such programmatic visions this will necessarily be a very first step. It's a big task. Science for People magazine hopes, hopes, as I said, to publish an issue sometime next year on the topic of a vision for a left science. Um, the, this panel is, is intended as a first round, um, opening what we hope will be a much longer and very fruitful conversation and debate. One question for me is, from, all, from the point of view of all of you, uh, you all have very different uh, perspectives, but very critical ones. Um, what is science? So anybody who wants to talk about that. Um, so, can I, I also had some prepared remarks, if I Oh, could. I'm sorry, I completely forgot that, because no, I got all confused about my... <laughs> yeah. um, I also just like had some framing that I personally wanted to bring to this discussion. Um, when I'm, like, I'm very excited about this conversation, I really like the idea of envisioning what science can and will look like under progressive administrations. Um, and I also have a background as, as an organizer, and one of the exercises that we do regularly is to imagine the world as we want it to be, but to see the world as it is. And so I think that one of the problems that we're facing right now is that science in this way has been very reactionary. And that's kept us in a defensive posture and, and unable to enact the changes that we want to see in the world. Um, and so I think like this discussion is critical and necessary. Um, but I also think that before we can have the most effective version of this conversation, we need to like take full stock of our starting point and like make an honest assessment of our starting point. Um, when I have conversations like these with people who are scientists, um, one of the things that I find very frustrating is that these will be people who understand the importance and necessity of science and want to like I, I guess like disseminate that worldview to people. Um, but often overlook the negative aspects and the negative histories of what 
science has been used to do and the harm that science has been used to cause to marginalized populations. Um, and so I would also particularly like it if this conversation was grounded a little bit in like that honest assessment of the problem. Um, because that lets us know what work needs to be done. And in some cases to be undone, no? Um, so uh, I have some particular problems that I see, and this is certainly not a comprehensive list, um, but if I'm just thinking about and taking stock of like what's wrong right now, uh, here are a couple of things that I see. So one is that there's a, a lack of public trust in science, and science has a PR problem, like, and it's not a wholly undeserved PR problem, right? Um, I also think that there are bad faith actors in the institutions that oversee science, uh, and that trickles down uh, into bad faith acting within science. Um, I think that science is inaccessible to lay people, and that also feeds into the lack of trust that lay people have for, uh, for science and academia, and that it is, it not only seems like an ivory tower that is inaccessible to them, but it actually is that. Um, and that the process of doing research and the process of doing science is still plagued by racism and sexism. Um, scientists are people, people bring their biases, white men have been in power in this country for forever, and that has trickled down into the systems uh, that we see today, including scientific systems. Um, and so again, those are just some problems that I've seen uh, and experienced as, as a grad student in science. Um, and I think like those are something like we should acknowledge that this is where we're starting from, and we should acknowledge that these are problems. Uh, so those are my prepared remarks. Um, I also do have an answer to what science is. This is like one of my favorite things that um, popular science, I guess, communicators do is like come up with like very short and very pithy definitions of what science is. Um, and I was thinking about mine like all last night, and I have that. It's great. Science is an organized, <laughs> rigorous, and systematic curiosity. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, anyone else? Yeah, so I guess we'll also, remarks, but also just contextualizing ourselves so that you understand like what perspective we're bringing when we speak about science. So we are co-hosts of a podcast called Abolition Science Radio, which is just one piece of a larger project that we call Abolition Science. Um, which we, which is derived from W.E.B. Du Bois's Abolition Democracy, so in Black Reconstruction in the South. He talks about after slavery, what is the path that the United <coughs> States could take? And a big part of that was like, we can't just like dismantle this institution of slavery, we also need to build up institutions so that the thoughts and things behind it that allow this to exist doesn't get carried over. Obviously that happened, so we, <laughs> we did not get that vision that um, that he was talking about. And so we are just sort of applying that to science and thinking that we, this institution, it, and it is an institution that has been constructed like other institutions, um, and dismantling it, what does it look like to envision and come up with something uh, different. So we also have organizing backgrounds as well. So our mission, um, which also speaks to how we view science, um, is to undermine the racial capitalist logics of Western, of Western science and math that necessitate the continued exploitation and the violence against land and black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, and, and also noting that all capitalism is racial. Um, we want to imagine and shape alternative math and science futures, um, build a collective community to shape a vision for liberation, 
historicize science and math to understand how it operates in the present, um, and then also be a resource for places of teaching and learning, learning since we're both also educators. And just to, I guess, add to that, um, the conversation that you know we're engaging in is to problematize when we talk about science as not one particular thing, because I think the assumption is, you know, um, that science does have a history and that there's like one version of it. So we, what, in a lot of our work and a lot of our research, is, I mean, seeing, for example, um, scientists as my mother, my grandmother's practices as they relate to the conditions in which they live and the creations and the investigations and the curiosities that come out of those conditions. Um, and so that this is happening anywhere and within a particular context for particular reasons. Um, and I think that's kind of how we, we engage um, investigating science and math is where it's situated, how it historically is um, arising, and then it's multiple. And Rochelle Gutierrez, who's a mathematician and a math ed scholar, um, does an incredible job of um, lending some language to this where um, she talks about the multiple different types of mathematics that are practiced, um, so to name them as such. So like Western mathematics or uh, Mayan mathematics or, um, so to kind of broaden the way that we engage as opposed to collapsing everything as uh, one assumed understanding of, of what this activity is. Awesome. Okay. You have anything you want to say? You, can, you, you said that you didn't have prepared remarks, but you said no, you, I do pre have you prepared. prepared. Oh, Connor set out some uh, general questions, and so, of course, I wanted to think about them. What is science? Uh, it's both a, a body of knowledge, a body of supposedly trustworthy, unbiased knowledge about nature and society. It's also a process of obtaining that knowledge. So it's two things. One is the knowledge itself, and the other is the, uh, the knowledge-producing activities. Science is presumed to be trustworthy because it's based in objective fact rather than subjective bias. By definition, that would require research to be conducted impartially by scientists with no conflicts of interest that could affect their judgment. But a lot of what's called science today is motivated by the maximization of private profit, as everyone knows. That guarantees material conflicts of, in conflicts of interest that totally undermine its, its credibility and its integrity. And that's basically uh, half of the subject of what I've been writing a book about. Uh, I, I conclude that corporatized or privatized research isn't science at all. Uh, privatized science is an oxymoron. Um, one, there, there's many forms of, of uh, private funding for science. The main one is uh, corporations just uh, do their own, what they call science. They use the techniques of science and they come up with scientific sounding uh, results, but of course it's not science. Uh, pub the opposite is public funding. Most public funding, unfortunately, is just uh, the government subsidizing private research. Uh, so, but there are a couple of, of big uh, uh, exceptions to that rule. One is the science that supposedly government labs are doing for uh, uh, the FDA, the CDC, uh, the EPA, and so forth. Uh, that's another question which, uh, of course, you could write a whole 
issue of the magazine on that. But I wanted to mention one uh, exception that's become more and more evident, and that is what's called philanthrocapitalism. And what it stems from is the abdication of social responsibility by governments in the age of neoliberal austerity, which has left a void for private capital to fill. The prime example of philanthrocapitalism is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation is often praised as an agent of positive social change for its philanthropic work. So if somebody came to you and made that statement that it is, how would you answer? Um, if you examine it, you see it's, there's plenty to say that uh, goes against that. First of all, the Gates Foundation is first and foremost a mammoth financial institution designed to minimize the taxes the billionaire family pays. Its more than $50 billion endowment makes it the largest private foundation in the world. As such, it, it, the foundation itself is a major investor, of course, and big pharma firms such as Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, Johnson & Johnson make up a significant part of its investment portfolio. The connection between Pfizer and the Gates Foundation is one among several that d deserve careful scrutiny. In 2012, Melinda Gates announced a $4 billion initiative to get 120 more, uh, million more women, 120 million more women access to contraceptives by the year 2020. That sounds like a noble goal. The particular con contraceptive she was promoting was Pfizer's Depot Provera. A Dow Jones publication noted that $4 billion in new research for women's health care makes Melinda Gates perhaps the biggest player in the future of pharmaceuticals worldwide. So let's do the math. 120 million new women users for Depot Provera at an estimated average yearly cost of 200 bucks per woman works out to $24 billion a year in new sales for Pfizer. That's a very good return on a $4 billion investment research, a $24 billion a year uh, new sales. So let's connect the dots. If all goes to, uh, according to plan here for Pfizer, first of all, Pfizer makes and sells Depot Provera. The Gates Foundation invests in Pfizer and funds its research. The Gates Foundation enormously expends the market for Depot Provera. Pfizer reaps windfall profits from Depot Provera. The value of the Gates Foundation's stake in Pfizer increases. The Gates Foundation therefore gets richer. Bill and Melinda Gates uh, their already outsized share of the world's economic resources increases accordingly. The first time I looked at that, their endowment was about 40 billion. Two years later, it was 50 billion. So it's, it's gaining uh, fast. But in the final analysis, the Gates Foundation does often provide needed medical aid that negligent governments of rich and poor countries alike fail to provide. Like all charity, it doesn't address root causes. The endemic health crisis of the third world stems from its poverty. The Gates Foundation, in conjunction with Big Pharma, 
perpetuates and exacerbates global economic inequality. However, there's an essential difference between philanthrocapitalist foundations and the blatant tax dodges established by right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers to fund uh, right-wing anti-science propaganda. For one example, the Gates Foundation has invested $200 million in an effort to provide the world with something that most Americans take for granted, a sanitary way to dispose of your feces and your urine. More than half the world's population, four and a half billion people, according to UNICEF, do not have access to sanitary toilets, resulting in death by diarrhea of almost half a million children every year. A possible science for the people subject. The Gates's toilet revolution at least called attention to an appallingly neglected global health problem. By contrast, the foundations of the Koch brothers, the DeVosses, and, and their ilk have no redeeming value whatsoever. 